All right, Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be in uh, this morning as we continue our journey through the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be picking up in verse 5 where we left off last week, but as you guys uh, make your way in the Bible to Acts chapter 4, let me just remind you of where uh, we have been up to this point and where we are headed to. In Acts chapter 3, what we see, uh, the scene that's set, is that uh, Peter and John, the apostles, are headed into the temple for a prayer meeting. At 3 p.m., that's their regular time of prayer, they're at the temple. They're making their way uh, toward direction, headed into the gate, beautiful, that main gate that opens up into the temple courts in Jerusalem. And as they're headed that direction, uh, they stop, and they see a man alongside the road. And as uh, they stop there, Peter empowered by the Holy Spirit, tells this man who's begging for money, he's just looking for a a few bucks, he tells him, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And so, amazingly, miraculously, this man who had never walked a day in his life, he was born lame from birth, uh, his feet began to take strength, and he was able to stand. And not only did he stand, but he actually leaped and praised God and jumped up and down as they entered into the temple courts. Now, you can imagine uh, this whole set of events that I've just described caused quite the stir in the temple that day. So the the whole area was abuzz, and Peter seizes this opportunity to deliver his second evangelical message. Pete's looking around at the crowd that's getting all excited. He's like, this is the time to hit him with a little bit of evangelism. And so that's precisely what uh, Peter does, but it's not done without some opposition. And so for the first time in the book of Acts, we looked at it at the end of the sermon last week, we see the first opposition arising against the message of Jesus as it relates to these apostles. And the main group are the Sadducees. Now, the, this, uh, this larger religious group, which is known as the Sanhedrin, was made up of uh, Sadducees and Pharisees. So for the Sadducees, they're the main ones that really come up against what Peter and John have done because they do not believe in miracles or the resurrection, which I shared with you last week is precisely why they were so sad, you see. Come on. It's funny every time. All right. But needless to say, this group, because they were the more materialistic ones that didn't believe in miracles, now they've got a miracle standing right in front of them. What are you going to do with that when you don't believe in miracles? And so this is the conundrum these guys have. They're looking at Peter and John. Here's this lame man who can now walk. What do we do with this guy? And so uh, they make the decision that it's getting late in the day. It's about evening time. Now, remember, this started at 3 in the afternoon. It's now sometime in the evening. It's getting dark. Uh, Let's just throw him in jail until the next day. So they don't know what to do with them. Like, let's just throw them in jail until we can get together and figure it out. And so for Peter and John, this uh, good work that they've done, it ends them up in the slammer. But where we uh, finished off last week, and this is, this is a little bit of encouragement if you've ever suffered persecution, uh, 5,000 men were saved. <laughs> 5,000 heard the message that they had given and actually received Jesus Savior. And so this beautiful uh, revival was taking place there in Jerusalem, but it leaves Peter and John, where we're going to pick up here in verse 5, in prison. So in verse 5 of chapter 4, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, 
John, this wouldn't be John the Apostle, but a relative of the high priest, and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? And so they assembled together these rulers of Israel. This is what is known as the court of the Sanhedrin. Now I share with you that this group that ruled over the Israeli people and over their, uh, their Jewish religion, it was comprised of both Sadducees and Pharisees uh, of a number of 70. So they had 70 of these leaders. These were the, the top of the top, the most educated ones. These were the ones that gathered there in Jerusalem, and they had another member as well. So actually 71 total members because the high priest counted as the extra vote there uh, gathered together. Now, this would have been the same group of people that gathered during the trial of Jesus, Jesus appearing at the end of our gospel accounts before the Sanhedrin, before they sentence him to death. Now, they ask a very question here in verse 7. They say, but by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, this seems like, at least as we read it, to be a good question. By, by what power or what name have you done this? What in the world has taken place here? But I want to tell you um, that they had some sinister ideas in their mind. And really, where they were getting this from is Deuteronomy chapter 13. I know you guys love it when I go to the law. But go into the law all the way back in your Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. They know this from the law, that if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he, he, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, then let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so the reason for asking by what name do you do this under is, goes right back to Deuteronomy 13 because if a miracle was done by any other name other than the name of Jehovah, they were to actually stone that prophet to death or that worker of the miracle. And so now you understand the scene of the Sanhedrin that's set that they've probably got the rocks already in their hands. They are ready to go as they ask this question of Peter and John. So we see in verse 8, Peter going to respond now to this group. Now, I put a picture up here on the screen so you could see what this must have looked like, how intimidating this might have been. You can't hardly see it because it's probably too small. But this group of men would actually gather in a semicircle all around them. Again, remember, this is the, the top of the top, the leaders of Israel, and Peter and John would stand in the middle facing all of their accusers, greatly outnumbered. That's important as we read in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. And so he addresses this court filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this is the same Peter who when we were going through the Gospel of Matthew, at the end of Matthew, uh, was outside of the temple courts. He was actually watching as Jesus was there on trial. And what was he doing there? He was warming his hands by the fires of the enemy. He was there warming himself, trying to stay warm. And as he was out there, uh, he was approached by a little slave girl that said, hey, aren't you, with, aren't you with that guy? Aren't you with Jesus? And what we know about that account is Peter denied it. He didn't deny it just once, not twice, but three times. He stamped his feet. He cursed. He said, I do not know this Jesus. And yet here's Peter again. 
Previously, he was burnt by the fires of the enemy. And that's, that's important for us to understand because if we at any point warm ourselves by the fire of the enemy, what you'll know is for at least a season, it feels pretty good. <laughs> Sin always does for a season, but it always has a price too. And so here we see Peter, who in the end of Matthew was burnt by the fire of the enemy. He has now been forged in the fire of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he is actually encouraged on fire for Jesus through the fires of the Holy Spirit. And, and because fire, fire does this for sure, it, it always purifies. The fire of the Holy Spirit actually brings up all of that yuck that we have going on inside. And it's true for all of us. We've got some kind of thing that we're working through. And, and for Peter, he, he's got some things that needed to be scraped off. And as you look at fine uh, metals, what happens is when they purify those by fire, the, the impurities rise to the top so that it can be scraped off. And this is true for us as well. That as the Holy Spirit uh, adds fire into our lives, it isn't just so God can burn us. It isn't even just because he likes to scrape things out of our life. It's because what he knows about us is that we, if we're going to stand up to the fire of the enemy, we must be pure. He is looking to purify us as a people so that when we come under fire, we can actually stand. Now here is Peter. He is in the fire of the Holy Spirit. He's coming under fire, and what does he do with his chest puffed up? He addresses them, uh, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. In verse 9, he says, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means has he been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. So what happens is Peter's now being grilled, and he, he goes into verse 9. He says, what are you really questioning us about? Why again did we spend the night in jail? Because a good deed was done? Because a man who you all knew, you walked past him every day. He'd been laying out there for decades outside the temple. You walked past him. He can now stand and walk. This is the reason you've called us in. And so now he has a very Jack Nicholson moment. Right, he has a few good men moment. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. That's what he's saying. He looks at them and goes, you want to know who it was. You've questioned me by what name we have done this under. And, and he says, by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I love that he always gets this in there too. Whom you crucified. I mean, here's a little extra dig. While you're busy grilling me, oh, this is the guy that a couple months ago. But it's by this name that this power, this thing was done, which is very interesting when you think about their law. Deuteronomy 13, we just read that. And what we read there is that if a, a miracle was done by any other name other than the name of Jehovah, uh, they were to actually stone that person. And so what does Peter actually say? He says, by the name of Jesus, this thing was done, who was his Greek name, but his name in Hebrew was Jehovah Shua, Yeshua. In our English language, it's translated Joshua, but it means literally Jehovah is salvation. And so what you see is uh, only by the name of Jehovah, what Peter's saying is, oh, this was by the name of Jehovah, all right. By the name of Jehovah Shua, Jehovah is salvation. That's the name that this man was saved by. Now then verse 11, Peter continuing, he's on fire now. 
He says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And so what Peter's going to do is he's going to go back in defending his position, defending his faith using what? Using Scripture. You want to know why I encourage you to read through your Bible? It's so when the pressure comes on, you have something to actually turn to, a backlog of information. And so Peter knows this psalm, and he also knows this psalm. This was a Messianic Psalm 118. And in verse 22, uh, this is what Psalm 18, what uh, David writes. He says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. What did they quote as Jesus comes in triumphantly to Jerusalem? But Hosanna, save now, we pray, O Lord. They were quoting this same psalm. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so there's this beautiful messianic psalm, but it begins with the the stone which the builders rejected. And what Peter's saying is, this stone is Jesus. Now Peter goes on in his epistle, 1 Peter, his letter that he writes to explain more about what he was getting at. Uh, as it relates to stones. He's not talking about the rolling stones. Sorry, Mick. He's talking about 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Coming to him, speaking of Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. What's Peter talking about? He's talking about you and I, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but we are called to actually be living stones, perfectly placed into this body of Christ, to actually be a part of the holy temple. And so as we fit together, sometimes as the stones fit together, what you find is uh, things get knocked off every now and again, right? There's a little bit of rubbing that happens. There's some, there's some dings and some dents. But as things get pried into place, it's much like the early temple. When they constructed it, when Solomon ordered for the temple to be built, what he said is that no tool was to be used on the job site. So they're on the Temple Mount. They're they're building this beautiful structure to Jehovah. And as they're constructing it, no tool was to be used. All the excavation, all of the the fabrication was done off-site. And they were to bring in these huge stones. They would weigh thousands of pounds apiece, and they were to be slid in one at a time. It was a beautiful work of craftsmanship. But as the story goes, as tradition tells us, is that as they were building this and the the orders were coming in from the quarry and one at a time these master builders were constructing the temple, that they got this stone that didn't fit. It it was sent early on in the process, but it, it didn't fit anywhere at all. And so they looked at the plans, this doesn't fit, and they took the stone, assuming that the quarry had misfabricated it, and they just rolled it off the side of the Temple Mount to the Valley of Gehenna for it to just lay there. And they went on with their temple construction. And so they built it up to a point to where they were ready now for this monumental moment of the construction of the temple where the cornerstone was placed. Now in uh, their masonry construction, the cornerstone was everything because it tied the entire structure together. It was crucial to making the thing structurally sound. And so they went to place the, the cornerstone, but there was no cornerstone. 
And they're looking around. Where in the world? Did you have the cornerstone? No. How about you? I have no idea. So they pick up the phone. They call down to the quarry, and they're like, hey, man, what's going on? Where's the corner? I don't know why they sound like they're from the East Coast, but in my mind, they always do. Hey, man, what's up? Where's the stone at? You guys must have missed it. And so they get back out their records. They look to see who signed for it on the job site. Like, wait a minute. This thing was sent. You guys actually uh, didn't accept it. That's the issue. And so these builders are scratching their head, and they go, oh, no, you don't think that that was the stone we cast off early on. That was the cornerstone? And so they go down into the valley of Gehenna, which in uh, our scriptures always symbolizes Hades, actually. They have to go down to the thing they cast off as if it was intended for hell, and they find the chief cornerstone down there at the bottom of the hill, and they bring it back up, and they place it into the t- everything structurally sound and secure so that they could worship. That's the story Peter's referring to when he says, this is the stone that the builders uh, rejected. But notice what he says in verse 11. It was rejected by you builders. You rulers and chiefs of Israel, you rejected the chief cornerstone. Now then verse 11, nor is there any, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Speaking of the name of Jesus. Folks, if you get nothing else out of today, let me encourage you, highlight Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Highlight it, underline it, memorize it. It is that important to our walk in this Christian life because what Peter is saying is there is no other name under heaven given to men by which men must be saved. It is so very vital. And it it meant a ton to these guys as well because everything about their religious experience was all based upon their works. How hard can I work? How many sacrifices can I bring? What can I do for God in order to have fellowship with God? That's everything to do with their religion. Good thing we don't do that in our religion today, right? So much of what they believed was built upon what they could do. And what Peter was saying is the only way to get to heaven. The only way is by the name of Jesus. Now that sounds to be very narrow-minded, right? That sounds to, to, to most people like, you know, there's really only one way to get to heaven. But Jesus says in Matthew seven fourteen that uh, straight is the gate and narrow is the path that leads to eternal life, right? So Jesus was all about being narrow-minded, a narrow focus that it's only by Jesus. There's no amount of work I can do. There's no amount of sacrifices I can give him. It is only through belief in him and in the power of his name. Verse 13, now when they, the leaders of this Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. So in verse 13, what they look at is they look at Peter and John now standing boldly before them. They reason in their mind that these are two uneducated, unlearned men. And the reason is because they were a couple Galilean fishermen. I mean, these guys had the redneck language. They sounded like they were from Clark County, right? If I got any of my Clark County people out there, but they sounded like, man, I'm down here from there. They sounded 
uneducated and unlearned. But here's the thing. In verse 13, these uh, men, these rulers, had two major misconceptions about what they had heard. Uh, first of all, it's that they were uneducated. These men had spent three and a half years with the Son of God in the flesh. They had gotten a full degree from Jesus University. They had gone everywhere with them. They had been in Israel, in Syria, in Lebanon, and what they had learned in that process, these two men in this group that followed, uh, they had learned to appreciate the fear of the Lord. That what Proverbs 9.10 says is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is the fear of the Lord all about? It's all about knowing his position and my place with him and appreciating him uh, for it. And so this is the place where wisdom begins, knowing how great and awesome and powerful God is. And they got to see it firsthand with Jesus. But then also what we see is, is they began to understand where true wisdom is actually found. The true wisdom, true knowledge, and this still exists for us today, exists right here in our hands. Everything we need for life and godliness exists in this beautiful letter written to us by the God, we're able to go through and actually be educated by his scriptures. So here's the deal. If you're struggling with work, for example, there's answers in here. Struggling and wanting to be a better husband, a better father, a better wife, a better mother, whatever the struggle, whatever the issue, there are answers in this place. If we will just stop long enough, put ourselves off to the side long enough to seek him out. The second misconception is at the end of this verse, in verse uh, 13. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Notice with me that they had been with Jesus. Now think back to your Sunday school years. For those of you that attended Sunday school, Daniel chapter 3 is one of those famous stories we love to tell. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three Hebrew boys that were taken away from their families into Babylon, and actually they were made to be rulers in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. These guys were set up to be rulers over thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. But uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he loved, to, uh, he loved to make these widespread decrees. And he made one that was all about this gigantic idol he built to himself. That was his favorite person. And so he told everyone in his kingdom they were to bow down to this uh, idol. But for uh, these three young men, let Nebuchadnezzar uh, change their name and change uh, probably their, their very appearance. Their names weren't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their names were actually uh, Hebrew names, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, beautiful Hebrew names that all spoke to their God. Nebuchadnezzar changed them to speak to his pagan gods. They'd allowed this to happen, but when it came to worshiping his idol, they refused to do it. And as a result, they were thrown into the fiery furnace, thrown into the fire to die. Nebuchadnezzar said, throw them in. The fire was so hot that the servants that went to throw these three young men in actually burnt up in the process. But what they found was uh, as these men should have died, they should have been in there burning to death. What Nebuchadnezzar notes in Daniel chapter 3 is, wait a minute, how many people did we throw into the fire? Because there's a fourth one in there. And the fourth one appears as the son of God. And the reality is, uh, for Peter and John, uh, Jesus wasn't someone that they had been with. He was someone that was currently with them. 
just like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God was actually there with them. The same is true for Peter and John. The reason they were to be so bold, the reason that they were who previously were burnt by the fire, then they were forged in the fire, now they're on fire, that Christ was actually with them in the fire. And the same is true for us. That if we're being persecuted, if there's things coming up against us in our life, and our relationships, the reality is Jesus isn't looking for this to be a has-been, past-tense relationship. He wants a very now, present relationship with each of you so that he can stand with you in the fire. So that when people come up against you, just like what he promised in Luke chapter 12 would happen, this very thing is taking place. Luke chapter 12, verse 11 what Jesus says as he's addressing his disciples there, he says in verse 11, Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, sounds a lot like Peter and John right now, when they bring you to these places, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. His promise was to be present and accounted for at the point where they were actually under fire by the enemy. He's going to tell you what to say. And so this is where Peter's at in this spot. Verse 14, and he continues on, they continue on speaking now about these two men. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. They could think about this situation because the man that had been healed was standing there with them. Now, remember what I said in the introduction, that this whole healing took place the day before. Peter and John were thrown into prison overnight, and now here's this man who was healed, who actually had to have Peter and John help him be able to stand. Now he comes back and actually stands alongside them during their trial. I love this, because what you see is a fellow believer coming alongside a brother to stand right there next to him as he's under fire. Look, if you're going to stone these two guys, you're going to have to stone me too. That's essentially what this guy is saying. And so the question is, uh, who do you have to turn to when you're in a trial? Who do you have to turn to in the middle of the firestorm? If you wonder why we gather as a church and why we come together, this right here speaks to it. Because you need to have people that will come alongside you. If blood is thicker than water, which may be true, I know one thing for certain is the spirit is thicker than blood. Spiritual family will stick by you even in the middle of a firestorm. And so uh, be encouraged. Hopefully, prayerfully, you've got someone to come alongside you when you're in the middle of a trial. Now then verse 15, but when uh, they had commanded them to go aside, so now the council's ordering these guys out, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. And so what we see is, here's this man who is healed. We know this miracle is taking place. We cannot deny it. I shared this with you a little bit last week. But the fact of the matter is, a transformation in someone's life is hard to deny. In churches all over America, we will argue about the dumbest things. I mean, we will argue about doctrine and biblical stances and how hot's the coffee and what committee are you on. I mean, we, come, we invent stuff to get upset with each other about. 
But you know what? One thing is that no one can be upset about? Your testimony. No one can argue with you about what God has done in your life because he's done it in your life. It's your testimony. They can't be upset about that. That's what these guys are looking at. Here's a testimony standing in front of us. Here's a man that's clearly been transformed. What are we going to say about that? Our testimonies are always a picture of a lame man or woman who is now able to walk. You and I are the lame man in this story. Spiritually, from birth, our feet, our ankles, our legs did not. We could not enter into fellowship with God because we were spiritually dead. Now, coming into a relationship with Christ for the first time, able to walk into fellowship for the first time, that's the story of transformation. That is rejuvenation. That is a transformed life. If you want to pray for something in your life, I want to encourage you, don't pray for restoration. Pray for transformation. We don't want to be restored as a people to what we used to be. We all the time cry out, Lord, we just want things the way they used to be. I hate to tell you, things weren't that great the way they used to be. I mean, for most of us, right? If you're really being honest, what we want is transformation. We want new life, a new birth. That's what was standing here before them, and they don't know what to do about it. Verse 17, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no other, no man, excuse me, from now on they speak to no man in this name. So I kind of butchered reading that verse, but what they're basically saying is let's give them a good old talking to. That's what my mom used to do to me. I'm going to give him a talking to. So that's what they're saying. Let us give them a good old a threatening talking to them. Verse 18, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. And so notice what they really uh, about. Do not any longer speak to people in the name of Jesus. That's a funny thing to get upset about, isn't it? Upset about the use of a name. Why would they be so upset? And the reality is, it's because there's power in the name of Jesus. There is power. They, they are notating it by their fear, by being upset that the name of Jesus is real and powerful. Don't believe me? Just use it in a conversation and see how it changes the narrative. Right? You can talk about God. You can talk about faith. You can talk about spirituality all you want. You'll, you'll engage with people, but drop the J-bomb in that thing and just watch how it turns. Just say Jesus, and they're like, whoa, what in the world? What are you talking about? All right? You'll know quickly where you stand with people when you say the name of Jesus in a conversation. Now, for many of you, you're not called to speak the name of Jesus, you know, in front of people, sitting on a swivel stool, looking all dapper with your shirt untucked like this guy is, right? You might not have been called into that role, so you may wonder, what could I possibly do in the name of Jesus? Well, here's a few things. I won't go through all the scripture with you, just a couple. Uh, the first in Mark 9:41, you can give a, a cup of cold water to someone that needs it in the name of Jesus. You realize that? In the name of Jesus, you can come along spice, alongside that is just simply in need. And when they're in need and when, when they're truly uh, down and out or in that spot, you can go, hey, I, I just wanted to give this to you. I just wanted to help you out with this in the name of Jesus. Every ministry that we support as a church, thank you, by the way, for allowing us to be able to do that, we do it in the name of Jesus. 
And if those ministries don't do things in the name of Jesus, we don't support them anymore because there's power in that name. And if there is not, if, if it's not present, guess what? There's no power. There's nothing taking place in that spot. And so it's in the name of Jesus we can come alongside and simply give a cup of cold water. Matthew 18.5 says that if you receive a child, receive them in my name. And so if you want to know a spot where you can actually speak the name of Jesus and encourage in his name, it's through helping with children. Right? For, for some of you, many of you perhaps, you've got children who have either have been involved in children's church or currently are involved in children's church. Now, that seems like a very thankless job. Often it is. Uh, but do you realize that if you're a person serving and helping a child in Jesus' name, that you're actually uh, really, really coming alongside parents who sometimes just need a break. They just need a few minutes off. They'll even tolerate somebody like me speaking to them for like a half. That's how bad they need a break. Like, man, they must really need some time off. They're going to listen to that guy. But this is the reality. Even something as simple as changing a diaper, right? I'm not trying to just be funny, but like something as basic as that done in Jesus' name is powerful, and it blesses people. Thirdly, we can baptize people in the name of Jesus, right? We are called to go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so hopefully somewhere along your life, you'll have the opportunity to lead someone to the Lord. And I pray for you, you'd even have the chance to baptize someone in the name of Jesus. You can do that. You've been given authority by God to do that. And so this is the, the third one. Finally then, Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 47. This is what Jesus says post-resurrection. He says, I'll actually start in... Uh, yeah, start in verse 47. And that repentance and the remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these, verse 48. And so the remission of sins in his name should actually be preached or proclaimed. And so the encouragement here is that you too can actually extend this gospel message to people. Because the remission of sins can happen through the name of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the good news that we're to go out into the world and proclaim. That your sins are actually forgiven. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, right? That your sin, the thing that weighs you down so much that you're so convinced nobody could forgive you of this thing, Jesus did. Not only forgiven, but forgotten for all of eternity. It's a beautiful thing. Now then, verse 19 But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, uh, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and have heard. And so here, uh, Peter and John are confronted with this decision. Are you going to please uh, men? Or are you going to please God? And so many times, this is a decision that we have to answer in our day-to-day -day life. Am I going to attempt to be a man pleaser? Am I going to actually attempt to please an audience of one? God and him alone. I want to encourage you, uh, if you've been in a spot, at least for me, for, for at least 15 years, I was in a spot where I was trying to please the people I worked for. I mean, everything I could do, bend over backwards, overtime, staying late, in early, whatever it was, because I wanted them to be happy with me. 
I want you proud of me. And what I realized was very much what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 29:25, that the approval of man is a snare. It's a trap. You can never achieve the approval of man. You may get it for a little while, but you'll never get it for a long period of time. And so what happens is now you've got to go do the next thing. What have you done for me lately? The next thing, the next thing. But the beautiful thing is when you realize that you are only seeking to get God's approval, him and his alone, it is next to your salvation. It will be the most freeing thing you ever experience. That when you realize Colossians 3.23 says that I, I work as if to God and not to man. I am working as hard as I can for him, not for any man or any woman. When you realize that, it will be so very freeing to you. Now, note with me here in the uh, end of, of this section, verse 20, Peter says, but for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and have heard. Peter's saying, look, the only things we know to share are the things that we have seen and have heard. And so we have seen Jesus. We have heard Jesus. We're proclaiming his name because that's what we're intaking, which causes me to wonder what kind of things am I inputting. If I'm struggling to speak of Jesus, uh, what kind of things am I allowing in? Because I can only speak of the things I have seen and have heard. Uh, an old saying is this, uh, the dog you feed is the dog that will win. And so when we're struggling to speak the name of Jesus, but we're feeding the flesh over and over again, what I see, what I watch, what I intake, it's no wonder we struggle to speak his name because we have not seen and we have not heard. But conversely, when we intake the spirit when we intake the spiritual things what you'll find is you're not going to be able to help but speak the name of jesus when the radio station changes when the input changes when the movie watching changes when the conversations change when my morning reading time changes i'm not going to help but speak the name of jesus because that's the thing i have seen and i have heard the dog you feed is the dog that will win now verse 21 so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they had all glorified God for what had been done. And so they give them this good old talking to, this strongly worded message. But ultimately what they couldn't argue with is the people were actually glorifying not Peter and John, but they were glorifying God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men so that God can glorified that when we let our light shine we point the glory up to him and him in heaven and that's what's taking place here so they had nothing to complain about god's being praised and glorified verse 22 for the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed do you realize this man had been paralyzed for over 40 years for over 40 years, from his mother's womb, he was paralyzed. For four decades or more, and who knows how long he had been set outside the temple gates. I shared this with you a few weeks ago, but time and time again, people passed by this man begging, looking for some help. And it wasn't until this day that he actually received the thing that no doubt he'd even lost faith would ever take place, and that was that he would walk again. And, and thinking of this just a little bit further, uh, you know, one of the people that passed him regularly as he was going into the temple 
was Jesus. Jesus passed by this guy and didn't heal him because it was not yet in his timing. And so many times, this is where we get tripped up in our Christian life, that, that we pray about a thing for a few days, maybe even a few weeks, and it doesn't take place, and then what happens, immediately we lose heart. God, you're not hearing me. God, you don't care. God, you're not interested in what I have going on uh, in my life. But let me tell you this. What God is always about is getting the most good for the most people. And this is very much the case. What did I just mention in the intro? 5,000 people were saved through the miraculous healing of this man. 5,000 people were saved while this man waited 40 years. John chapter 9, Jesus addresses this with a bunch of Pharisees, and they've got a question for him. They come up to him about a man that was born blind. And in verse 1, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. You see, this miracle held off for so long because the works of God were actually revealed in this man's ability to now run and leap and walk and praise God. And so, if that's you in this spot where you've prayed and you've been on your knees and you've begged God for years and years about something, I want to encourage you today, keep keep knocking. His salvation will take place. Be encouraged through this scripture that he is always lining things up so the most good can happen for the most people. And guess what? You'll be a powerful witness to that. It will be a piece of your testimony when you get to actually see that thing take place. So do not lose heart. Verse 23, as we continue. And being let go... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And so they left there and they went back to their own companions. The old King James says, to their own company. I like that phraseology. They went back to their people. And so the question is, who do you go back to when you're in the midst of the fire? What, what is the thing you turn to? Do you have something that you go to? We all do. Do you, do you have a, a spot you go? Maybe you've got a a person you turn to, but perhaps for some of you, you've got a, a thing, a bar stool, a glass, smoking that thing, drinking that thing, turning to that thing. Maybe it's that unhealthy relationship that you've got that you go to. I want to just encourage you, uh, find godly counsel. Find company that you can turn to that will actually point you back to the Word of God because that is the only place where there is actually any kind, everything else, it's just hopeless, right? It, it, there's no power in it. And so for these guys, they go back to godly company. They go back to people who would actually encourage them and come alongside them. Now verse 24, as we head down the home stretch, as they gather back together, they begin to actually pray. And so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God 
who has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And so as they uh, went into the Lord to pray actually together as a group, they prayed in, in a couple different ways. And so if you struggle with how do I pray at times, let me just encourage you with the pattern that we see from these apostles. And if you want to know how to pray, by the way, here's what I want to encourage you to do too. Um, I want to encourage you to pray. You want to know how to pray? Pray. Pray with people. Listen to how they pray. Model your prayers based upon what you see and also turn to Scripture. How do people in Scripture pray? And the first thing we note that they do is they recall who God is. Who is he? They say here in verse 24, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. They think to the glory of God. Stop and acknowledge his handiwork. Right? As you're driving in, this is a picture I took last week driving into work. I mean, what a beautiful sun. The blues and the oranges and the purples, it's so magnificent. I mean, think about how great our God is. And here's the thing. He actually wants a relationship with you. <laughs> he gives you access to call him. This God of the universe, his heaven, our heavenly Father, pray to the Lord like that. Pray to him, calling him personally, Father, it doesn't always have to be Lord and God all the time. Not that that's not all good, but speak to him to, to what he truly is, and that is your heavenly Father. Remember where he's positioned. Because the fact of the matter is, just like Jeremiah recounts, I'm going to go back to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah in this uh, part of his uh, prophecy has been put in a terrible spot. He's just come out of prison, and now as he's come out of prison, the Lord tells him, as the Babylonians are getting ready to take people captive, I want you to go and buy a field. Really? Like the Babylonians are coming in on Jerusalem. They're going to capture the whole city, and you want me to go buy a field? Are you sure about that, Lord? Now, this is the guy whose entire ministry lasts 40 years, and he has zero converts. So if ever I'm feeling bad about my ministry, I just turn and look to Jeremiah because it ain't that bad. I mean, 40 years with no converts, nobody listening, but here's what he recounts in Jeremiah 32, verse 17. He says, Ah, Lord, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. <laughs> Lord, there's nothing I can bring to you that's too hard. You created the heavens and the earth, and by starting our prayer in that spot, we, we understand there is nothing too big for God Almighty. Now continuing in verse 25, who by the mouth of your servant David said, why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain and the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ? For truly against your holy servant whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And so they go into this section where they tell the Lord what's going on, which I love this. God wants to hear what you have going on in your life. Oftentimes we believe this lie that he doesn't care about my day-to-day. -day. He doesn't care about what I've got going on. That is completely foolish. He cares about what's taking place, even if he already knows everything, which he does. But he still wants to hear from us. And this is precisely what these guys do. They cry out to him that these rulers are plotting against him, that they're coming up against him. They go to Psalm 2, which David goes to, and he says the rulers gather together against him and against his Christ, against his Messiah. 
David will actually go on in Psalm 2 to say that as they gather together, you know what the Lord does? He laughs. I love that in Scripture. He, like, really, you little kids. Like, you're, you're gathering up against me like you've got some plan. They, they go on to say that all these things that have been done had been determined by you. Nothing happens in your life that God did not, at the very least, allow so that he could actually draw you into a closer relationship with him. Now that, uh, that's, you know, sometimes stands to go against what we think, right? We think, God, I'm suffering in this spot, and yet I'm in the middle of this trial. Where are you? The, the point is to actually draw us closer to God, to actually bring us back to a closer relationship. And so Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 that we shouldn't be surprised by this. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But instead, verse 13, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So what Peter's saying is, don't be surprised when you have to go through trials and tribulations. The truth about our life, whether you believe in Jesus or not, is you're either going into you're in the middle of a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. That's the only three stages you're going to be in. You're going into one, you're in the middle of one, or you're coming out of one. But what Peter's saying is when you're in that spot, don't think it uh, foolish or strange or think you're the only one going through that, but instead rejoice to the extent that you get to partake in Christ's suffering. So in the middle of this spot that you're in, actually you have this unique opportunity to praise him in the middle of suffering. And here's why. He says it at the end of this verse, that if you partake in his suffering, then you also get to partake in his glory. That at the very least, this suffering is temporary. And at the very most, the world has to actually throw at you in this life. The truth is, if you believe in Jesus, this is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. There's a whole lot of excitement that comes with that. The worst the world can throw at you is as close to hell as you're ever going to be. And so what Peter encourages is the same thing we see in the Old Testament. If you look at the book of Judges, I'd encourage you to read it. It's like the, well, kids, you may have to check with your parents. It's sort of like the rated R book of the Old Testament. I mean, there's some crazy stuff that goes on in the book of Judges. But what I love about it is at the very beginning in chapter 1, what the Lord says is, I want Judah to go into battle. I want Judah to go first into battle. And if you go all the way to the end of Judges, as they're going against their own people, what the Lord says is, Judah first. I want Judah to go into battle. And if you just read that, you might not pick up on what they're really saying is, the name Judah in Hebrew is praise. That what God is saying is, when you go into battle, I want you to lead in praise. How is it possible that we could lead into a battle with praise? It's this simple. You already won. You're already victorious. There's nothing the world can throw at you that you shouldn't be able to praise through. Praise him in the middle of it. Paul says you should be thankful in all things. Be thankful. Notice Paul didn't say for all things be thankful. There's some things we can't be thankful for. There's some people we can't be thankful for. But there's certainly some things that we can't be thankful for. But in all things, we can be thankful. And so, telling him what's going on in our lives, that's the second piece to their prayer. And then finally, as we wrap up today, they, they remember why they come to him, why we come to God with our issues. 
Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when, we, and when they had prayed, placed the place where they had assembled together was shaken, and they all were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And so we see yet again this little church gathered together was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, we can be continually filled with the Holy Spirit as many times as we want to ask. I don't know about you, but I ask for it every day. I get up and I ask for his Holy Spirit every day, and I do that because H.A. Ironside said, I pray for the Holy Spirit to fill me every day because I leak. <laughs> I mean, we are leaky vessels. Some of you leaked out just trying to get to church this morning, just trying to get to church on time. There's probably some arguments happening in the bathroom. Get your get, get, get the car, the car, get the car running. And then all my Jesus just went out. Right? So that's the reality for all of us. We're all just battling through this life trying to get to the spot. And so the prayer is, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I need this continual filling so that we can be rejuvenated in him. But notice with me as they prayed to him and the Holy Spirit came upon him that they did not pray for the persecution to be removed. Isn't that amazing? They didn't pray, Lord, stop the persecution they prayed, Lord, give me boldness in the middle of it. Give me the ability to actually be brave in this firestorm that I'm in the middle of. But you'll find as you pray that and you allow Christ and the fire of the Holy Spirit to come into your life and raise those impurities to the top, that before long, the thing that is actually going to come to the top when the fire comes on is going to be Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to ooze out of you so that you can be a witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth, in Charleston, in Mattoon, in Coles County, and all over, everywhere our feet go, we'll be able to be witnesses to Jesus because of the power of the Holy Spirit, allowing him to work in our life. Because here's the reality for them. They could have prayed for the persecution to go away and prayed for the trial to go away, but the truth is the same for them as it is for us today. We're already free. You guys are already completely and totally set free if you believe in him as your savior. There is not a thing the world can do to you, and that is, that is a life worth living. The abundant Christian life is to start right here and now, where we get to live like that. So I want to encourage you guys to be bold as you go out this week, to be bold as you have your interactions. Not in people's face so we can yell at them and tell those sinners how they're going to hell, but instead to be bold for what Jesus has been up to in your life. This is what God with me. This is how he's purifying and cleansing me. And as you share that, oh man, it's going to be unbelievable how many people come to know the Lord just through the power of your testimony. And so Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study through your scriptures. Lord Jesus, as we um, get our hearts prepared for communion, would you please create in us a clean, clean heart, Lord? Would you allow the fire of the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, to bring up the things that we have been hesitant to deal with, the, the impurities that we just don't want to scrape, we want to just leave them in there. Father, please uh, let this time be a time of examination. 
Let this time be a time of uh, transformation, Lord, as we get to uh, partake of the elements. So we lift all this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jake and Michaela are going to play, I want to encourage you guys just however you feel comfortable to come forward, to come forward as a family or individually, uh, take of the bread and the cup, take them back to your seat, and we will enjoy a communion together. And as uh, you do that, I want to encourage you to pray through what the Lord is up to in your life. What thing is he calling you to be bold in? Maybe it's something you need to be bold in coming to him, to his throne of grace, and hesitant to bring uh, there before him and lay at his feet. Maybe it's boldness in a relationship with somebody you love and care about. I just want to encourage you guys to do that, to think on that as we take this time to observe communion, which we'll do together. What a friend we have in Jesus All our sins and griefs to bear What a privilege to carry Everything to God in prayer Oh, what peace we often forfeit Oh, what needless pain we bear All because we do not carry Everything to God in prayer Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with the load of care Precious Savior, still our refuge Take it to the Lord in prayer To thy friend I forsake thee Take it to the Lord in prayer In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find the solace there.
So as um, the Apostle Paul was addressing the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, a group that had gotten communion wrong a lot, um, he says in verse 23 of chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on that same night that he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Lord Jesus, when we come to you and we take uh, this bread and we just are so very thankful for your sacrifice, your body, which you willingly broke on our behalf, which we by no means have had any ability to come to the Father without that sacrifice. Father, for what you've done. In Jesus' name. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so with that, we take this cup, Father, and we give you thanks for your precious blood, which you poured out on our behalf, Lord, that, that we would have that opportunity that we talked about today to be able to come so boldly to your throne, to be able to bring things to you and just cast them at your feet and say, Abba, Father, we get to just climb up on your lap as our dad. Lord, thank you for that opportunity that we have because of your blood, which you shed on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for the new covenant, which means that we no longer have to be a people of works, but instead, just through faith, it is accounted to us as righteousness. And so we thank you for your blood. In Jesus' name, amen. And with that... On the night did that, what he said is uh, they stood up and they sang a hymn and they went out. So I want to encourage you guys to stand as we sing this. Everybody has trials and temptations. Everybody knows heartbreak, isolation. We can lay our burdens down. Lay our burdens down. What a friend we have in Jesus. He's too waste my sins are gone. I see grace on every horizon and forever and ever his heart is mine everybody has fears everybody got worries everybody knows sorrow devastation we can lay our burdens down Lay our burdens down. What a friend we.
East to west my sins are gone I see grace on every horizon And forever and ever His heart is my home No more betrayal For He is faithful He fills me up And my cup runneth over No more betrayal for He is faithful, how He has proven it over and over. No more betrayal, for He is faithful. He fills me up and my cup runneth over. No more betrayal, for He is faithful, how He has proven it over and over. What a friend we He's to us, my sins are gone And I see grace on every horizon And forever and ever His heart is my home Forever and ever His heart is my home And the church says, Amen Thank you, guys. Uh, God bless you. Reminder, we got lunch downstairs, so lots of chili, lots of food, lots of fixings. So please uh, stick around, enjoy a time of fellowship with us. If you need prayer at all, uh, I'll be hanging around after service. Love to catch up with you. God bless.